Uh, I teach in perspectives, and Brett and I have made many a drive across somewhere together in order for me to teach, and I, for him to sort of go like, you know, check in on, on a class that was ultimately underneath his uh, territory of responsibility. But I think along the way, I, like to, I would like to think that you just got to where you, you enjoyed driving with me. Yeah, that's, a, that's definitely it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to miss that. Um, if you have a Bible, you want to open up to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Uh, I did youth ministry for um, like close, close to 10 years, if you count uh, my time doing internships here with uh, LCF student ministry while I was in college, and then my time doing ministry as my full-time job. And my context for that was always here, Northland, um, suburban, upper uh, middle class, suburban America. And oftentimes, I would have conversations with people, and they would, they would ask about the challenges. What are, what is hard about doing youth ministry, or what are some of the challenges in doing youth ministry? My answer was always the same, that one of the biggest challenges in doing student ministry in an area like this, but also in just doing any ministry in an area like this, is that when you are engaging with people who uh, have never really faced need in their life, to try to convince them that they need a savior is very challenging. What, What do you mean I need a savior? I've not ever needed anything in my entire life. Especially working with with middle school and high school students, the, the line between need and want is very, very fuzzy. They use the word need, they're talking about a want 95% of the time. In other contexts, the challenges would be different. Often, often when we're, whether sort of like passively taught about sharing the gospel and evangelizing, or even explicitly taught, I think we're often sort of instructed that you usher someone toward the gospel by helping them understand that they need a savior and that Jesus is the answer to that need. That is all factually true. It's Tim Keller who says that, uh, or who said that alongside need for a savior, oftentimes what you might need to display is want for a savior that a person might not be able to articulate it, but often what's happening kind of subconsciously or even passively in a person's life is that they're actually telling you that they want a savior, whether or not they know that they actually need a savior. And from start to finish, the Bible is displaying humanity's need for a savior and then presenting Jesus, the Messiah, as the only answer to that need. But when you read through the Old Testament, the Bible's also presenting to you humanity's want for a savior and Jesus as the only answer to that want. In Matthew, we see that Jesus is the long-expected savior who saves his people from their sin. He is without a doubt the savior that humanity needs, but he is also without a doubt the savior that humanity wants. We're gonna see that in Matthew chapter one this morning. So if you've got it open, 
I'm going to start in verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter, which is verse 25. Matthew chapter 1 says this, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. And he named him Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for the birth of Jesus the eternally existent son's entrance into the world in order to save humanity from their sin. God, I pray this morning you would help us to see afresh or for the first time the full scope of what it means that Jesus saves us from sin. God, I pray that that would lead us to worship. I pray that that would lead us to awe and to adoration. I pray that it would fuel our sense of anticipation and expectancy here in the Advent season. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we worked with the Gospel of John, and we saw the way John presents the origin of Jesus. John's approach is very sort of existential and spiritual in nature. This week, we're seeing the way Matthew presents that, and it is different. It is very earthy. It's kind of granular. It's like nitty-gritty in the details. And so, actually, even before our passage begins, if you just look at Matthew chapter 1, Matthew starts his Jesus origin telling with a genealogy. He begins with the Ancestry.com version of things. Here are the nuts and bolts of how we got from Abraham, Matthew chapter 1, verse 2, all the way to Jesus, Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. And what you have there in your genealogy is not the sort of modern day family tree style of genealogy where you would sit down and you would put husband, wife, the little line down, you'd you'd kind of broaden it out and you'd put all of the children that they had and then you would connect spouses and draw it out and you would get like a web. What you have in Matthew chapter one is an ancient paternal lineage genealogy. It just goes father to father to father to father to father in one direct line. That's simply to say, all you're seeing in Matthew's genealogy is how you get from Abraham to Jesus via the paternal figures with just a couple very brief, noteworthy Old Testament women mentioned. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. And the first sense that you get here that maybe there's something unique about Jesus actually comes in verse 16. It isn't just Jacob 
fathered, or Jacob fathered Joseph, Joseph fathered Jesus. It's Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. And an ancient reader would lean forward and say, oh, tell me more, to which Matthew then obliges, beginning in verse 18. Every modern English translation puts a break between verse 17 and verse 18 and then inserts their own heading. Now, the headings are not scripture. Matthew did not drop that in there inspired by God. That's put there by an English translator. If you've got a CSB, it says the nativity of the Christ. Nativity simply means the occasion of the birth of the Messiah or the Christ. If you've got an ESV or a New Living Translation, it says the birth of Jesus. The New King James says the birth of Christ. The NIV heading says Joseph accepts Jesus as his son. All of those headings are trying to tell you something about what happens in this passage. What Matthew does in verses 18 to 25 is that he tries to help you understand not actually how the birth of Jesus came about, but how the conception or the origin of Jesus came about. Luke tells us all about the birth of Jesus, that it was fairly eventful, yet on the whole, unremarkable. It's the origin of Jesus that is the source of momentary scandal here in Matthew chapter 1, as well as eternal mystery. In fact, the opening words of Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, are literally translated, the genesis of Jesus Christ came about like this. And so Matthew wants you to see three things. Number one, Mary is Jesus's human mother. It's crucial to Matthew's point. There's a miraculous conception, but Mary carries and gives birth to Jesus just like any human mother would. Exactly how the fully human and fully divine nature of Jesus exist alongside one another, that's a mystery. But Mary, as the human mother of Jesus, is concrete fact. Really briefly, the miraculous part here is not Mary. In fact, I think Matthew and Luke both want readers to understand the normalcy of Mary. Mary was a young woman betrothed to be married just like any other young woman who would be betrothed to be married at this particular time in history. There's nothing uh, spiritually superior about who Mary is or why she was chosen to give birth to Jesus. She's a normal, teenage, young woman in this period in history, in this part of the world. The second thing that Matthew wants us to understand is that God is Jesus's heavenly father. Again, there is immense mystery here. Mary conceives in a miraculous way that is the work of the Holy Spirit. It was discovered before they, Joseph and Mary, came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. 
any reader for the last couple thousand years reads that and says, I would like a few chapters on exactly how that came about. Matthew says, you get that phrase and we're moving on. No time for explanation. He just simply wants you to know that God is Jesus's heavenly father. John chapter one tells us that Jesus was sent by God the father into the world. Matthew 1 shows us that that happens via a miraculous conception whereby the Son of God is born as a baby after being carried for nine months in a normal pregnancy by a normal young woman named Mary. Number three, Joseph is Jesus's legal father. The genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 depicts for you that Jesus is from the line of David. That's in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The narrative in verses 18 to 25 depict for us that that lineage is not by blood. It is by adoption. Jesus is of the line of David by legal adoption, which is why the NIV gives you the heading that it gives you. Joseph accepts Jesus as his son. And part of the narrative is trying to show you that there's a scandal that takes place here. Mary and Joseph are betrothed to be married. They're engaged. And that carries much more weight in the ancient world than it does today. Betrothal was a legal relationship in this day in a way that engagement is not in our day. Once betrothed, It was about a year until marriage, but it would be normal during the betrothal to talk about the two parties as husband and wife, even though they're living in two separate places and they're not married yet. It's inside that window somewhere that Joseph learns that Mary is pregnant from the Holy Spirit. And we're told, verse 19, that her husband, Joseph, is a righteous man. Your translation might say just man. Being righteous or just, Joseph understands that there are consequences to a pregnancy that happens in this betrothal window. In fact, Deuteronomy actually says that not only could he divorce Mary, call off the marriage, he could do so publicly in a way that would humiliate her. But Joseph doesn't want to do that. He has in mind to divorce her quietly, which would mean giving her a certificate of divorce in the presence of two witnesses. Deuteronomy says he can take her before the entire city at the city gate and humiliate her there for presumably becoming pregnant by having sex with another man who is not Joseph. He decides to divorce her quietly. Give her a certificate, two witnesses, it's official, call off the marriage, part ways, everybody move forward. A really quick practical application here that is in no way tied to the larger point this morning. Our cultural moment says that if you're going to stand for righteousness, it's not only acceptable, but actually expected that you would do so almost as a bully. That in fact, to not do so really boisterously 
and as a bully in some corners of Christianity is actually weak. You don't actually care about truth. You're wishy-washy. Notice that Joseph does not buy in to that false dichotomy. He can be righteous and just and understand the law while simultaneously being gracious and gentle and kind. And we can do likewise. You can stand firmly for righteousness and do so without being overbearing, belittling, or intentionally humiliating. Back to the main point. As Joseph is set to do this, the angel of the Lord appears to him. After he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, keep Mary as your wife, and name this miraculously conceived son Jesus. And so Joseph wakes up, and he is obedient. He marries Mary, which would be shocking to an ancient reader, and then he has no sexual relations with her until she gives birth. Matthew then says that Joseph names Jesus. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he, Joseph, named him Jesus. That's ancient history's shorthand way of saying Joseph adopted Jesus as his own son. So, who is Jesus? Matthew tells us that he is the son of Mary, the legal son of Joseph, of the line of David, the son of God. That's who Jesus is. And he has this mysterious and miraculous human and divine nature, which John highlighted for us. He is God. He's eternally existent. He's the embodiment of the word of God. He was the active agent in creation. He's victorious over darkness. And here he comes, born into the world as a baby to a woman named Mary. That isn't all that Matthew's been trying to tell us. In fact, all of that isn't even really the most important thing that Matthew's trying to tell us in chapter one. Matthew uses his Jesus origin story here to tell you about the miraculous conception of Jesus, but to also foreshadow the entire reason for such a wondrous miracle. You are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Jesus is the long-expected Savior, son of Mary, legal son of Joseph, son of God, who saves his people from their sins. We said part of what we want to do in our Advent series is tie together what we've been seeing in Genesis, the foundation we have from Genesis, and what happens in the coming of the Son into the world. And that in so doing, we'd be tying together big narratives within Scripture. We've seen pictures of humanity being saved in Genesis. Genesis chapter 6, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. He was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth. 
couple verses later. Noah, however, found favor with God. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. In Genesis 6 and 7, 8 and 9, humanity is set to face the just consequences of their sin, but there is a righteous man through whom humanity will be saved. As we worked through that passage, we pointed out the reality and the moral justness of a holy God judging humanity in their sin. We talked about it being God's grace that brought favor to Noah. We talked about the God of the universe being simultaneously able to bring just judgment and gracious deliverance at the same time. And then we saw God shut Noah and his family into the boat, save them from the wrath of the flood, and deliver Noah and his family, and thus humanity, safely to the other side of judgment. And then we saw the harsh reality that though saved from the momentary outpouring of God's judgment against sin, the problem of sin had not been solved. Sin came right off the boat with Noah and his family. In a similar way, we saw God do the same with Lot and his family in Genesis 19. And in a very similar way, sin rears its head in Lot's family on the backside of their deliverance, just like it did with Noah's. And so, even though deliverance has come from the momentary outpouring of God's just judgment, salvation from sin is yet to come. It's fair to say that through Noah or in Noah, humanity was saved from the judgment for sin in a moment. But what does Matthew say that Jesus is going to do? He will save his people from judgment for sin. Doesn't say that. You will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Not just the judgment, but from the sin itself. Well, what does that mean? We need to do a little bit of biblical history here for just a few moments. In the explanation of Jesus' birth, Matthew tucks a prophecy in. It comes from Isaiah. It's in verse 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the Lord, by the Lord through the prophet. And then if you've got a CSB, it puts your words in bold. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel. When your CSB Bible does that, it's quoting from the Old Testament. If you've got a Bible that puts little references in your margins or down at the bottom, it will tell you where that reference is from. You can go back and then just read the context of what takes place there. The biblical history we need to do is, I want to explain to you the context of that prophecy. Noah was... 1700 some years after Adam. Humanity was still waiting for the one who would crush the head of the serpent. Isaiah is 1700 some years after Noah. And humanity is still waiting for the one who will crush the head of the serpent. So we're north of 3400 years, south of 3500 years since God said that one would come, the seed of the woman, who would crush the head of the serpent and put an end to sin. And everybody's still waiting. And in Isaiah, chapter 7, 8, and 9, there are a few popular prophecies about Jesus. But they're made in the immediate context of a king of Judah. 
His name is Ahaz. And he's got a struggle or an issue because there are some nations who are about to invade Judah. So this era of biblical history, the people of Israel, the Israelites, are split into two nations, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Ahaz rules Judah. And the nation of Israel, along with the nation of Aram, are set to invade Judah. And so Isaiah is sent by God to Ahaz and says, ask for a sign from the Lord your God that he will deliver you from these two nations. And Ahaz, in a weird act of sort of pompous piety, says, well, I won't put God to the test. To which Isaiah replies, will you try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Emmanuel. I don't want to detract from where we're heading, so I'll try to be brief here. Old Testament prophecy has what scholars call near and far fulfillment. Near fulfillment is typically in the immediate or soon fulfillment of the prophet's words in Old Testament history. Far fulfillment is what Tim Keller in our series would call the true and better fulfillment that ultimately comes through Jesus. And so the near fulfillment here is that rather than asking for God, God for a sign and trusting him, King Ahaz actually strikes up a deal with Assyria in order to beat back the kings of Aram and Israel, and eventually Assyria drives Israel into exile. And in that time, Ahaz gets married to a woman who is a virgin. And they have a child named Hezekiah who goes on to be king of Judah. Look back at your genealogy. Verse nine. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Hezekiah would go on to become king of Judah, and he's one of just a handful of good kings that either the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah have. And during his reign, while watching Israel be carried into exile as judgment for their sin, he institutes sweeping reform that brings about a singular worship of Yahweh, the tearing down of idols, and the reinstitution of God's law, the Old Testament. And for a brief time, Thanks to a righteous king, there is deliverance from the just judgment for sin. Israel's experiencing that judgment. They're being taken into exile, kicked out of their land. Judah is not, although they will. And it is as though in the reign of Hezekiah, God is with us, sparing us, saving us delivering us. And over 500 years later, from Isaiah to Matthew, everyone's still waiting for the one who would come and actually put an end to sin. And then a child is born. And Matthew's account of Jesus's origin wants you to understand. Miraculously born of a virgin, the literal presence of God among humanity, come to save his people from their sin, not just the judgment. A true and better savior than any other in a way that Noah or Lot or Hezekiah or any of the judges in the book of Judges or any of the kings in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Jesus saves in a way that no one else 
can. He's the long-expected, victory-winning Son of God, the long-expected Savior who saves his people from their sin. I cannot remember where I heard this story. I dug through a bunch of books on my shelf trying to figure out exactly where it was so I could get all the details right. I couldn't find it. So you're going to get a vague illustration that I cannot attribute. (laughs) You you probably should have left it out, Tim. Nope, it's too good. (laughs) There was a uh, the story goes that there was a group, of missionary, uh, uh, a group of missionaries who had gone to live among a people, and they're doing Bible translation among people who have never heard the gospel and who don't have scripture in their own language. And as they're doing the Bible interpretation, they're also doing what's known as Bible storying, which is that you work through the narrative of the Bible uh, in, like, uh, paraphrase. You're telling the various stories of scripture to a people in their language so that they can understand. And the cornerstone of this group's Bible storying was that they kept talking about the seed of the woman who would come to crush the head of the serpent. And the story goes, at various times when they would gather people together and tell these stories, and they would introduce a new character from the Old Testament, the people listening would say, is this the one? And they would do that over and over and over. They did it for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They did it for Joseph. They did it for David. They did it for Solomon. They did it for Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And then they get to the New Testament. The people listening don't know they're in the New Testament. The people telling the stories know that they're in the New Testament. And this person does Bible storying through Matthew chapter 1, and the room explodes. And one of the leading men in this community quiets everyone down and says, if this is not the one, stop telling us these stories. <laughs> and the, the missionary group had been thinking that they were, you know, slow playing the life of Jesus to the moment on the cross. But the room erupted at the moment of his birth. Because finally... He's here, and he will save his people, not just from momentary judgment for sin, but from their sin entirely. Long-expected Savior who saves his people from their sin. He is Emmanuel in a way that Hezekiah was not. He is a Savior in the way that Noah was not. He's the true and better deliverer from sin. And so what does it mean that we've been saved from sin? Well, it does mean that Jesus is the long-expected Savior who saves us from judgment for our sin. We need this. Whether they are aware of it or not, all of humanity needs this. In many ways, like I said at the beginning, this is how we're taught to share the gospel. You need a savior from your sin. If you're a follower of Jesus, you hold to the truth of scripture, then we hold to the truth that sin is a real thing and that the consequences for sin are real and just and we need a savior to save us from that 
judgment. And what Jesus offers humanity is not just momentary deliverance from the judgment due to our sin, but eternal salvation from the just judgment for sin. In a moment, by God's grace, through faith in Jesus, you can be saved for eternity. He saves his people from their sin. But not just from the eternal judgment. The long-expected Savior saves us from the oppression of our sin. You could also say the tyranny of our sin. Now here's the thing. You want this. Whether you can name it or not or put the right words to it. All of humanity wants this. Comedian Nate Bargetsy, he does a sketch about pancakes. He's talking about getting older and eating and how it's not the same as when you were like 22. And he says, I love pancakes so much and they make me so tired. (laughs) And then he says, and I never blame them. I'm always like, what is up with me? I can't get it going today. And I'll go to my wife and I'm like, I think we need new pillows. And she's like, oh, you don't think it was that loaf of bread and syrup you ate for breakfast? No, don't hear me wrong. Pancakes are not sin. Hear me correctly. We often relate to our sin the way Nate relates to his pancakes. We think we love it. But if we're honest, we understand it does not love us back. And that's whether you've been walking with Jesus for a long time or not. Some of the people that you know who are furthest away in your mind from faith in Jesus, who enjoy their life of brokenness as much as anyone else, if you caught them in honest moments, would tell you, it never does for me what I think it's going to do for me. And what they want is to be saved from the oppression or the tyranny of their sin. And in Jesus, we've got a long-expected Savior who saves us from exactly that. Not just the eternal just judgment, but the right now, everyday, lived experience of the oppression and the tyranny of our sin. Jesus holds out the promise of something better. Sin is like Lucy holding Charlie Brown's football. Here's the promise. Today's the day you kick it. I'm going to leave it right here. And it's never the case. Jesus holds out the promise of something better. Salvation from the the oppression of our sin. The actual delivering to something better. The long-expected Savior saves us from the alienation of our sin. We want this. And in fact, typically, all of humanity is willing to openly admit that they want this. Sin creates alienation. Alienation from the God who created us, which a person may or may not know or may or may not admit that they want. But it also creates alienation from other humans, which we all recognize and we all want solutions for. Sin also creates alienation from ourselves in life the way it was intended to be lived, which all of humanity intuitively understands. 
though we may not be able to actually name the cause. And so part of your presenting the gospel might be to highlight the cause of the alienation and then let someone know Jesus actually offers the solution that you desperately want. Why? Because he saves you from the alienation that sin creates. He brings us back into right relationship with God, back into at least the hope of right relationship with one another, and back into right relationship with life as it was intended to be lived. The long-expected Savior saves us from identification with our sin. We want this bad. Our culture today desperately wants this. In fact, our like cultural sort of like uh, vocalizers will name this openly. Look, if you're a follower of Jesus, one of the great gifts that Christ has given you as your savior is that he not only saves you from the judgment for your sin, he gives you hope of the freedom from it, not just the oppression of it, which we just talked about, but from the actual practice of it. In Jesus, we no longer have to be known by or identified with our sin. Our identity is now in Christ, and he was victorious over sin. Our identity is now anchored in the sinless one. We're his. He's ours. And no matter how long you wrestle with sin in your life, and you will wrestle with it your entire life, that struggle does not define you. Jesus does. And he holds out not only a new identity, but the hope of actual freedom from that thing. And for the world around us, it means that in Jesus, there's hope of not being branded by the times where you blew it the worst. You can get a new identity. Our culture gets a wild thrill out of catching someone in their sin and then pinning them to it and saying, that's who you are. We knew it, and we caught you, and we've got the receipts for it, and you can never get out from underneath it. To which the Christian says, not true. Yeah. It's not true. Like Christmas gives us a chance to blow fresh air across the smoking wreckage of our culture's obsession with canceling people. We stand up and say, that's not who you always have to be. Yep, it happened. It was broken. It was dark. It was unfortunate. But you do not have to be summarized by the totality of your worst moments. Why? Because Jesus hung on a cross so that you could get a new identity. And the long-expected Savior saves you from an identity that's built on your sin and swaps it for an identity that's built on his perfection. Last, the long-expected Savior will return and save us from the presence of sin. During the celebration of Jesus' first advent, we also look forward to his second. He will come back and save us from the literal presence of our sin. 
in a spiritual sense, he has already separated that sin from you, church, as far as the east is from the west. But in a real, physical way, when he comes back another time, he will remove it from you even further. In that moment, in the truest and fullest sense, we will experience Emmanuel. God is with us. We will be saved from our sin in every way and dwell with him for all of eternity. And we need that. Humanity needs that. We want that. All of humanity wants that. So in the Advent season, the Christmas season, what the Christian holds out is Jesus Christ, long-expected Savior who saves his people from their sin. And in the conversation about that, it's so much bigger than just fire insurance from hell. Yes, you get salvation from just eternal judgment, but you also get salvation from the oppression of sin, salvation from the alienation created by sin, salvation from an identity built on sin, and the promise of salvation from the very presence of sin. You will give him the name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sin. Amen? Amen. To that, the church says, Merry Christmas. Yeah? All right, let's... Let's stand up and sing. Uh, God, we praise you uh, for sending your son that we might be saved from our sin. God, as your people, God, I pray that as we navigate the reality of brokenness and all of its impacts, God, that we would only ever look to Jesus to provide for us what only Jesus can provide. Salvation from judgment, yes, but also salvation from all of the other worldly impacts of our sin. And God, I pray that we would hold out Jesus as the only means by which salvation is possible. God, would we make much of Christ in our hearts. We make much of Christ with our lips. This Advent season, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.